Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. I hope you guys like the new spiffy intro that I got for the for the podcast. I got a couple of new intros coming as well for the Combatistors and Deciding Splits podcasts as well, too. It's time to start stepping this up a notch, make it a little bit more professional. You guys know what it is. Um, let's quickly go over the um let, let's quickly go over my last event, which was uh, UFC 249, a very atrocious night for betting in terms of, uh, you know, trying to break a profit. So let's start off at uh, my first pick of the night, which was Nico Price. I had 0.75 units on him at plus 255, and man, was that bet looking good. You know, it was a little bit demoralizing afterwards when uh, I found out that the judges actually had it 1-1 going into that third round, and it was a very close fight. You know, I, I haven't watched it back yet, but... Um, you know, Nico Price looked good. I thought it was more so a, a first or second round KO uh, or bust for him. But he was actually, you know, his cardio was looking decent. Uh, his output was looking good. He was tagging Vicente Luque pretty much anytime he wanted to. Uh, but then Luque was able to land a beautiful punch uh, that I believe broke the orbital bone of Nico Price, swelled up his eye, and the referee was forced to step in and stop that fight. Uh, but man, I, I love the value that I got on that. Plus 255, Nico Price, I would probably take that again. I can't wait to bet him again because more often than not he's always going to be the dog because it's like uh you know he 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 mainly just has that puncher's chance uh but it looks like he's starting to round out his skills uh and he may be a little bit more valuable uh moving forward in the future so that was minus 0.75 units there next up we had Jorgen Castro 1.1 units at plus 190 um you know the the game plan in that first round looked great um it pretty much exactly what he wanted to do uh Unfortunate that uh, none of the judges gave him that first round, even though the majority of fans scoring had that first round for Jorgen Castro. But, you know, second and third round, he just did absolutely nothing. And a lot of people are pointing to the fact that he may have broke his uh, foot. Uh, I can see that too. But, you know, at this level, you got to go for it, man. Like, you can't just not throw anything. Throw a jab. Throw, you know, go out on your shield, if anything, especially a guy against a guy like Greg Hardy. Um, but yeah, uh, unfortunately, lost there minus one point one units there, uh, and then lastly we had my lock that I play initially. It was Jacare Souza. I had my, uh, three point five units at minus one nineteen on him, and then obviously we all know what happened with him testing positive for Corona, having to pull out pretty much the night before. Um, so I had to make a quick uh, adjustment on the fly in terms of who I wanted my lock of the night play to be. So I had. I had three bets in mind uh, that I would replace that Jockery bet with. Um, one of them was um, the under, uh, under one and a half in the Verdum and Olenek fight. Uh, passed on that, thankfully. Uh, the other was um, the over one and a half in the Ryan Spann and Sam Alvey fight. If you guys remember my breakdown for that, I told you guys that he's quite durable and, uh, you know, the... the the, the times that he got stopped out of uh, in his last two out of three fights, they were pretty early in my opinion. So uh, I believe his durability was still there and it would be worth over one and a half. But I'm not sure what made me pass on that. You know, I was I was very, very confident in it. I truly believe that it was the thought of, you know, uh, Antonio Noguero... Um, uh, landing on him, hurting him, and thinking, okay, if Noguera's hurting him, Ryan Spann will probably hurt him even more uh, and probably actually follow up and get that finish. But, you know, I, I thought too hard about it. I probably should have just pulled the trigger. 
at the end of the day, I ended up going with the under two and a half in the Ferguson and Gaethje fight. Five units at minus 167. That's minus five units there. Justin Gaethje was tagging him at will. I was very, very impressed with Tony Ferguson's uh, durability and resilience. You know, in past fights, he's been rocked. He's been dropped. But, you know, Gaethje was barely able to even drop him. He he landed him with, landed so many shots on him, uh, you know, but it was just two rounds too late. Uh, eventually, when, uh, you know, Gaethje was able to get the stoppage near the ending of that fifth round. So overall, minus 6.85 units on that card. Very, very atrocious. I'm very, very ashamed of myself, especially after putting together a solid three-event winning streak before that. But luckily, with this new schedule that the UFC has gone due to the COVID, we got a ton of fights back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back. At least back-to-back-to-back-to-back because I believe we only have uh, official cards set uh, from today up until May 23rd. We got uh, this Wednesday card, we got the Saturday card, and then the following Saturday card, which I believe is going to be headlined by Tyron Woodley versus Gilbert Burns. So we should be able to get that three-event three winning streak rolling once again uh, in the next uh, seven to ten days, ten days, I should say, uh, as long as we can stay, um, you know, discipline and making sure i'm picking the right spots here and thankfully for the next two cards at least i'm quite confident in my lock of the night plays that uh i'm going to be choosing um yeah uh, and and just as a reminder as always um this will be the second podcast where i'm doing where i've pre-recorded my my breakdowns and i'm just going to be stitching them all together for the podcast i'm loving this new style and i'm getting a lot of good feedback for it as well too in terms of recording the breakdown as soon as i'm done finishing the research um uh, for each uh, each matchup it's just so much fresher i'm able to get a solid eight eight to ten minutes per matchup out there which i believe a lot of people are enjoying and and it's really giving a lot of different perspectives and angles to each matchup uh but yeah, I really hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, if you guys haven't subscribed yet, please, please, please hit that subscribe button. I'm trying to get that 1,000 mark before uh, the end of the summer. Currently roughly around 840, I believe I'm at. Uh, but I believe I can rack up another 160 in the next couple months, strictly due to the fact that there's no other sports out there. So if you're watching this, there's a good chance that you don't really even follow MMA, but you still want to get your degenerate gambling on. And I'm happily here to provide that for you guys and give you guys some tips and pointers on who you should be betting on and what lines should be uh, standing out to you but uh yeah so that that's pretty much it let's just get into the breakdowns ike Villanueva versus chase sherman this fight is probably going to be quite sloppy so the line is quite even i think the last time i saw it was minus 130 chase sherman uh minus 110 uh ike Villanueva. But these guys are kind of similar with the slightly different wrinkle for um, for Chase Sherman. You know, Chase Sherman, uh, his last two MMA fights, both in island fights, actually were ended by leg kicks. But they didn't seem like the craziest or hardest leg kicks. His, his opponents just seemed, you know, not the greatest. Um, uh, say what you want about Chase Sherman. The guy's a little bit tough, but... Uh, well, once the guys really start pouring in on him, kind of like Augustus Sakai, he kind of folds. So I don't really know if Ike is the type of guy that will make him fold. I think the play here would be maybe the under one and a half. Uh, the line currently obviously isn't out on that. The fight doesn't go to decision is currently at minus 250. Um, you know, I think both guys, you know, Ike Villanueva seems to have a hard punch, but it also seems like his opponents are are not the, the best of competition either. Obviously, when you get to like heavier weights, it's most guys that are just thinking that, okay, I'm a big dude. Um, I've punched a couple people in the past and they've fallen down. So maybe I can try MMA. 
And uh, that's what it seems like most of Chase Sherman and Ike Villanueva's opponents have been. But then when they fight somebody who seems to take it a little bit more seriously than themselves, uh, you know, they get put out or they get put away. So, uh, you know, say what you want about some of the the opponents that these guys have had. Jeremy May, uh, you know, just falls off of a leg kick. Uh, the last guy that Chase Sherman fought as well, too. The guy just dropped off a one leg kick. It, it's kind of uh, hilarious to actually see. So I have no absolute, uh, you know, confidence on either side here. I give the slight edge to Chase Sherman because it seems like he likes to involve a little bit of leg kicks into his games. Um, has a little bit of pop on them as well too. So that's something to to consider. But Ike Villanueva, like it, it just seems like the UFC is just scrounging for opponents now or scrounging for fighters that are willing to fight during this crazy time that we're in. So, um, you know, I, I don't think I'll be laying any money here. I'd be interested to see what the under one and a half looks like, because that might be the only line that I'd be uh, interested in. But in terms of a pick, I have to go with Chase Sherman, just because he shows slightly more uh, diversity than Nike Villanueva, who I believe doesn't really deserve to be in the UFC. Neither of them truly deserve to be at the UFC in this point in time. And I don't think, you know, either guy has shown uh, well, Chase, I don't think he's really shown the the chops to, to really make it back to the UFC, uh, you know, legitimately, um, you know, and I, that could also be a testament to like his lack of opponents or, or, or the, you know, what they really bring to the table. Uh, one of the guys that he also fought to like rocked him severely. And it just seemed like he had this weird breathing style from the get go. Uh, what may have what may have attributed to him uh, gassing out even quicker. And then eventually, you know, he rocks Chase Sherman, wasn't able to put him away. And then he gasses himself out and then Chase Sherman comes in and stops this guy on the feet. You know, I have no no solid lean either or um, like I said, Chase Sherman is going to be my pick. I'm not betting either side. I don't care how big of a favorite or underdog either, either guy becomes. The only thing that would be intriguing to me would be a, an under one and a half. But even that I'd be, you know, skeptical of. Because, it, again, it doesn't look like these guys have crazy power on their shots. But their their opponents are just so lackluster that they just fold from getting hit on the button or something like that. So, I don't know. Um, not a good fight to bet on, truly. Uh, pass on it if you must. Um, if you again, if you must bet on it, if you must bet on the side, it would be Chase Sherman in my opinion. Experience, slight more diversity. That's about it. Uh, but yeah, my pick's gonna be Chase Sherman. Hunter Azure versus Brian Kelleher. This is a weird fight for me to try to cap. So minus one sixty five for Azure, plus one forty five for Brian Kelleher as of this recording. Um, Kelleher obviously has a little bit more experience in the UFC than Hunter. Hunter's coming off the contender series and obviously had that big win over Brad Katona in his UFC debut. Uh, so let's start off with Brian Keller. Obviously has decent power in his hands, has some really good guillotines. He's had a couple good guillotine wins, including his last one over O'Day Osborne. I believe that was back at UFC 229. Or sorry, two, when, let, me, let me confirm that. I feel like it was... Not 229, 246, yeah. I, I knew it was the last Conor McGregor card, that's for sure. <laughs> One of the last Conor McGregor cards. Anyway, um, you know, I, I'm not always a big fan of guys that pull guard uh, with a guillotine. And it, it seems like he does that every now and then. And he is successful with it every now and then. But it depends on his level of competition. Um, I don't know if he'll be able to get away with it against a guy like Hunter Azure. Um, I, I kind of believe that Hunter's main game plan here is going to be close the distance, get the fight to the ground, and kind of ride out on top. And I'm not the most sold on Brian Kelleher's ground game either. Um, 
you know, we haven't seen the most of it, nor have we seen really a, a wrestler first type of guy try to implement that wrestling heavy game plan on him. Uh, you know, John Lineker obviously pretty much outstruck him and, and just, you know, won does what John Lineker does. I don't really need to explain it for you guys for to remember how that fight happened. And then the Montel Jackson fight there only went a minute and 40 seconds. So that's a little bit harder to cap because I feel like we would have saw more takedowns from Montel Jordan in that fight. Uh, Montel Jackson, why do I keep calling him Jordan? Anyway, I feel like we would, we would have seen more takedowns from Jackson in that fight had it gone longer. But either way, I feel like that would have been a bit of a skewed um, statistic, just like, you know, when Tatiana Suarez fought Carlo Esparza, uh, that fight's obviously going to be skewed in the grappling department because Tatiana is such an outlier when it comes to those statistics. Montal Jackson, I feel like, would have been an outlier in this fight against uh, Brian Kelleher, strictly due to the fact that there's a huge uh, discrepancy in terms of skill, at least in my opinion. I believe Hunter Azure is obviously the better fighter here. Uh, my concern is like, you know, his cardio seems good. Kelleher's cardio seems good as well too. Um, I expect him to obviously be the better wrestler and better grappler here, but there is that off chance that Kelleher could snatch something up. I'm not, you know, banking on the fact that Kelleher is actually going to snatch it up. Um, I expect Hunter Azure to stay away from the big power of Kelleher. Uh, I truly expect him to kind of grind out Kelleher against the cage and then eventually take him down and smother him that way. I believe in his top control, especially against a guy like Brian Kelleher. Um, I don't think Kelleher is the best jiu-jitsu guy. I'm, I'm also thinking that it might be a little bit of a bias between or towards Kelleher that I have. I have no idea why. Like if you guys have seen my podcast in the past, especially whenever I break down a Brian Kelleher fight, I kind of let it be known that I just have this unspoken bias towards him. Uh, I'm not sure what it is. I'm sure he's a great guy and all that stuff. But in terms of his fighting style and just the way he acts, two do totally different things, right? Um, yeah, so it's hard for me to cap this fight. Uh, I do like Hunter Azure. I do like the, the grappling advantage that he does have. Uh, I am going to be picking him to win. Um, you know, his entries are great. He, he yeah, We've seen a decent chin on him in the past. Uh, obviously undefeated. Um yeah, it's it's tough for me to 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 see a way that Brian Kelleher wins this fight unless he pieces Hunter up on the feet, which I don't really see because I don't think that Hunter is allowed going to allow this fight to really play out on the feet as much. So, uh, you know, look for Hunter's Azure's Hunter Azure's uh, entries in this fight because uh, those are going to be you know important, and I'm sure he's obviously working on keeping his chin down and allowing uh, you know the the takedown to come easier rather than having to fight off a guillotine choke or anything like that. So another thing that we could also kind of look towards as uh, another reason why Hunter should be able to maintain top position is if Brian gets a little bit too cocky with his guillotine attempts, and he might just try to continuously you know pull guard uh, with that guillotine. But I don't think it's going to work on a guy like Hunter Azure here, who's very well trained as well too he's with eddie cha and those guys over at um uh fight ready down in arizona um obviously i i don't think that uh his training has gotten affected too hard either in terms of this covid stuff uh i'm sure you know him and his coaches the fight ready is not that big of a team anyway uh you know compared to these other big teams same with brian keller i expect him to be to come into this fight fully ready as well too but uh minus 165 you know what not that bad of a line uh, on Hunter Azure, in my opinion, at least from what I've capped this fight at. So um, I'll be looking as the, the, the lines play out leading up to the Wednesday fight card. Uh, and uh, I'll keep an eye on this Hunter Azure line for sure. But I got Hunter Azure to win this fight by decision. Um, yeah, tough for me to see a way that Brian Kelleher comes out here with a victory. Omar Morales versus Gabriel Benitez. I believe this is the fight that's going to be kicking off the Wednesday card. Uh 
you know, it's one of the later additions to that card. Uh, but it's an interesting one for sure. So Omar Morales has actually been scheduled to fight a couple times during this whole COVID thing uh, against Alexander Hernandez. Um, you know, that was actually supposed to be for the April 18th card when UFC 249 was still assumed to be going down. Uh, I believe they were trying to make it happen in California. Obviously, that got shut down. But uh, yeah, Omar Morales is definitely in a, has been in a training camp. Gabriel Benitez, uh, you know, he is stepping in. He was supposed to fight Lerone, Lerone Murphy at the um, UFC London card. I believe that was the one. Yeah, that was the one that was a week after the last UFC event that we had, which was Kevin Lee versus Charles Oliveira. So he was training as well, too. I'm sure in the meantime, uh, you know, during this COVID stuff, he was uh, he was training too. So uh, I'm not too worried about either guy being ill prepared for this matchup. Obviously, they both got the you know the call regarding fighting each other uh, at the same time. So in terms of changing up opponents and who they were originally um, uh, scheduled to face in terms of their styles, I think Gabriel Benitez was kind of closer to uh, you know Lerone Murphy is closer to Omar Morales than. Um, Alexander Hernandez is closer to uh, Gabriel Benitez, if you guys get what I'm trying to say. So Gabriel Benitez, you know, very good striker, has a lot of power in his hands. It doesn't seem like the guy that has a lot of power in his hands, but from that southpaw position, he's able to generate so much power uh, with his left hand, and he's able to drop, you know, guys like Sadiq Youssef. He dropped Enrique Bazola a couple times, same with Sam Cecilia. So he definitely has some power on his hands. Another thing to to really note about Gabriel Benitez is he has really good get-ups as well. You know, uh, Enrique Barzola took him down numerous times, and Barzola doesn't really have the best top pressure, but pretty much at will, whenever whenever Benitez wanted to get up, he was able to get up. The only issue was that he just kept getting taken down. Um, you know, he throws up submissions if he's able to. Um, the Humberto Bandene fight was a great victory for him too, even though it was only like 39 seconds. He caught himself, or he found himself in an armbar and slammed his way out of it. Um, probably not the best way to get out of a, a submission, but, you know, it paid off for him with that knockout victory there. Um, I think he's very smooth on his feet. I think he's highly underrated as well too. Uh, you know, he has hasn't really been a, a breakout star in the UFC or anything like that but whenever he comes out there to fight he always puts on a decent performance um you know the the Barzola fight was relatively close considering the fact that Barzola just kept getting takedowns kept getting takedowns he was just not able to keep Benitez down and Benitez always did a good job of getting back up you know uh, this is going to be the uh, back-to-back fight in terms of Omar Morales fighting guys that are uh, southpaws. You know, the last time he fought uh, was against Lil Dong or Dong Yama, um, or supposedly uh, Dong Young Kim. Um, you know, he was a southpaw too, but it seemed like Kim or Ma was uh, very tentative in terms of engaging in the feet with Morales. You know, it, it makes sense. You know, uh, Ma has gotten knocked out numerous times before that, so I'm sure he was scared of the power that Morales was bringing towards or into this fight. And, you know, Morales did drop him a couple of times, especially with the beautiful spinning back kick to the head that, uh, you know, allowed him to ride out the rest of the round on top or in top position. And that's where my concern or... Uh, you know, my the the unknown comes into play with Omar Morales. There's not that many. Like on the tape index itself, we only have three fights for him. Uh, one of his Bellator fights where he just, you know, was able to get the victory relatively quickly. Um, and then his uh, fight on the Contender Series where it seemed like Harvey Park actually broke his foot or injured his foot very badly when he was throwing a leg kick. Uh, you know, it was supposed to be to the body. It seemed like Morales blocked it and it hit his elbow and right after that, you could see Park really kind of, um, you know, he, he was really struggling at that point. Um, 
he wasn't able to put much pressure on it and it seemed like he was just a sitting duck waiting to get knocked out and Morales was able to to deliver that knockout um or TKO whatever you want to call it but it was a beautiful beautiful finish for a guy that was pretty immobile um my, my concern here is uh how good his takedowns are because the takedown the two takedowns or times that the fight found itself on the ground when he fought Dong Yama the first time he caught a leg kick from Dong Yama and then kind of just you know pushed him to the ground it didn't seem like a crazy high level takedown or anything like that and then obviously the second time was after he dropped uh Dong Yama so that was you know we don't really know what it's like when he gets a guy to the ground and his top pressure you know he was able to keep Ma down but his top pressure wasn't like anything spectacular like it was more so just being able to stay on top land some good shots but no real urgency to to really pass the guard or anything like that so i'm wondering if you know if he gets gabriel benitez to the ground um whether he's going to be looking to pass more uh or is he going to be content to to stay on the ground and i think that'll be a very uh bad mistake on his end um you know benitez is very uh offensive with his guard he's able to get up really quickly as well too but i don't think he would mind you know playing his guard a little bit uh and try to nullify the power a little bit of omar morales it seems like Morales's main game is to just you know throw no more than three punches in a row and actually uh you know try to intimidate his opponent with the power that's coming forward you know the the Lil Dong fight uh there wasn't super a lot of power or anything like that uh or, or sorry there wasn't a crazy amount of pace uh which were which allowed him to really you know portion his gas tank over the over 15 minutes um that's where my concern with uh with this fight for Morales comes I believe Benitez will put a little bit more of a pressure on him and he'll actually be able to to land some shots he'll be able to make Morales work and how is Morales going to look come second and third round that's my concern you know Morales is undefeated and I know we haven't really seen him in trouble in the UFC obviously he's only had one fight in the UFC but I think that Benitez could actually you know surprise him here the odds currently are not out I believe they're definitely not on best fight odds and they're not on topology either. So I'm not sure what the line's going to come out as, but I'm kind of expecting that Gabriel Benitez is going to be the dog here, especially after coming off that uh, knockout loss to Sadiq Yusuf. But I think that's going to be a mistake on the odds makers' ends. I think that Benitez brings a really interesting game to this fight. Um, and I think he might be able to surprise some people. I, I have a feeling that he's going to come in as the underdog. I kind of, you know due to the fact that we have limited tape on omar morales we only have three out of his nine fights and then obviously we got to be sure that you know the durability of benitez is still up there uh i kind of cap this as a 50 50 fight maybe even edge it a little bit to gabriel benitez he has the ufc experience he has the you know he has the hands he has a southpaw approach as well too he has the active guard his ability to always get up i think that's where it's going to be um played out so i I'm intrigued to where this line is going to drop. I, I can't wait. As of recording this, um, it has not dropped yet. Um, obviously, if you're watching the MMA Lockcast and you're watching this breakdown on that, I'll have the I'll have the odds listed below. But if he's anything less than even, like if he's worse than plus one thirty or plus, uh, sorry, if his odds are, you know, better than plus one thirty or plus one twenty, he might be worth a bet. You know, I would I would have to see what they dropped the odds at, but. If it was anything crazier than plus 150, uh, I think that's just too out of line. So that's something to keep an eye on here. Um, I'm going to take Gabriel Benitez to win this fight. I'm going to say by uh, by decision, I say he uh, 
or or even a third round finish. I see he hangs in there with Omar Morales, uh, weathers the storm in that first round, puts a little bit of a pace on Morales, works in his leg kicks, uh, and then takes away either a decision or a third round finish. Yeah, I, I like Benitez here. Sajara Eubanks versus Sarah Morales. This is an intriguing fight due to the fact that the line, in my opinion, is relatively wide right now. Um, so minus 380 for Sajara Eubanks, plus 320-ish for Sarah Morass. Um, so, so let's start off with Sajara Eubanks. She's looked kind of flat in her last couple of fights. The Aspen Ladd one, I'll give her a little bit of a pass on that fight due to the fact that I believe that Ladd is the better fighter. Um, did she fight like somebody that was a minus 330 favorite going into that fight? Probably not, and I'm talking about Aspen Ladd, but Sajara Eubanks made that fight a lot closer than it actually was. Uh, the Roxanne Modafferi fight as well, that was the one before that. You know, she looked good in there. Her hands always always look good, especially if you're fighting a girl like uh, Roxanne Modafferi. Um, and that's one thing you got to give to Sajara Eubanks in this division is that even though like her main advantage for in a lot of her fights is her grappling and her jujitsu, she's able to get away with using her hands. And her hands are comparatively to the rest of the division it's they're not that bad um you know obviously she had all those failed attempts of making 125 now she's fighting at 135 and she's like she she would benefit from a 130 pound division let's put it that way strict she's kind of like a, a kelvin gaslam you know what i mean she's kind of stuck in between weight classes and in this fight against sarah morass She's finding a girl that's kind of a bigger 135er as well to a thicker 135er probably a stronger 135er as well um you know, I fully expect Sajara Eubanks to have the advantage in the striking for the first like round and a half. But the one thing that I really like about Sarah Morass is the fact that she's always kind of pushing the pace, even if she's on her back or whatever it is. Um, she's always trying to find a way to, to push the pace to land offense. Um, you know, she's sometimes a little bit sloppy off of her back, but the fact that she's offensive uh, kind of makes it I, I'll, I'll look over the. The, the sloppiness due to the fact that she's just always coming forward and always trying to be offensive and always moving. Um, you know, she kind of surprised, uh, Samaras kind of surprised Macy Kiason with a quick takedown in their first fight. Uh, she was able to ride out roughly about three and a half, three to three and a half minutes of top position before Macy Kiason was able to reverse that position and then get on top and range shots. But the thing with Sajara Eubanks is she doesn't seem to have a lot of pop in her shots. So I'm not sure if that's going to be a huge um, worry here for Sarah Morass. Uh, you know, the one thing that did stand out in terms of Sajara Eubanks is striking. In terms of rocking anybody, she landed a great head kick on Roxanne Modafari, but was not able to end that fight. Um, but her hands look great when she has the gas tank for it. Her hands look really good, especially in that first round and a half or so. So I think that she'll be able to light up Sarah Morass in that first round if this um, fight actually plays out on the feet. I don't think that Sarah Morass is actually going to do that. You know, I think she's going to challenge the grappling of Sajara Eubanks here. Um, you know, I think that it's going to be mainly in the clinch position, mainly in the grappling position. And Sajara Eubanks is a pretty, you know, good and decorated grappler. But Sarah Morass, she's not that bad herself. Um, again, I did call her a little bit sloppy, so I, I would be concerned regarding her getting her position, um, you know, reversed or anything like that. But I think that the strength and size might have a little bit of an advantage here for Sarah Morass. Um, you know, plus 320, in my opinion, is too wide of a line. And I just think that we've seen Sajar Eubanks kind of fold and break in the past. Um, and, um, 
you know, she gets very demoralized, especially when her gas tank starts to dwindle later in the fights. She's always able to pull together like a little bit of a spurt and a blitz at the end of a fight. But, you know, the majority of that third round, she's not really having the best output or she's not really having the best uh, showing. Um, you know, the fact that if you guys have been longtime listeners of my podcast, you guys know how much I'm not uh, a fan of Betch Koea in terms of fighting style. And I don't think that she's that skilled either. And the fact that she was able to steal the fight from Sajara Eubanks here kind of leads me to believe that Sarah Morass would be, you know, able to do this kind of the same thing here. Um, Again, constant forward pressure. She will be able to break Sajara Eubanks. And there's just something about Sarah Morass where it's just like, she seems to have that psycho killer look in her eyes. And, you know, if you see, if you listen to some of her post-fight interviews or even just see her mannerisms or anything like that, she kind of reminds me of like, you know, we have Roy McDonald, who's like the Canadian psychopath or whatever the fuck it is. She could be the female Canadian psychopath. Um, but yeah, she loves to fight. And I think that she has the capability of breaking Sajar Eubanks here. This is, you know, a fight between two relatively mediocre fighters that probably won't ever be champions. But the fact that you're giving plus 320 on Sarah Morass is a little bit ridiculous. Anything other, uh, anything over, I'd say plus 250 is a little bit crazy. Plus 200 even, I think is a little bit crazy. Just due to the fact that Sajar Eubanks just, you know, outside of her striking, which is probably going to be the crisp thing here. And, you know, she doesn't, again, she doesn't really have knockout power. So I think that Sarah Morass would be able to um, handle and her durability will uh, you know, shine in this fight. As long as she makes it out of that first round and a half-ish, she could take put the fight really on Star Eubanks here and take over. So I'm actually going to go with Sarah Morass to win by decision here. I think that she breaks her in the later parts of the second round and then obviously in that third round. As long as she doesn't get put on her butt and, and get submitted or something in that first round, I think she has a lot better of a chance than a plus 320. So I'm going to go with Sarah Morass here to win by decision. Um, and again, all this crazy COVID stuff going on. Uh, do you really want to place a minus three eighty on uh, on a fighter like Sajar Eubanks, who all, all of you, like always just comes up short? Uh, not always, but always. But you know, she's just she's going to be uh, undersized for this division. She's coming off a tough loss to Betchkoya, and uh, in terms of the way that Betch won that fight, Sarah Morales could easily do the same thing in terms of her pace and pressure, um, and and her constant output. So this is a much closer fight than plus 320 uh, is saying for Samurai. So I'm going to go with Samurai to win this fight by decision. Michael Johnson versus Tiago Moises. This is an intriguing fight strictly due to the fact that the line is currently out of pick So there's value potentially on both sides here. So let's start off with Michael Johnson first and foremost. He's had a pretty up and down career. It's ridiculous to think that his record is actually 19 and 15 at this point in time. I remember, you know, coming off the Ultimate Fighter, he was seen as the guy that was, you know, the next big thing. Maybe not the next big thing per se, but like somebody that had a ton of potential that could potentially find themselves in the top five of the lightweight division. Um, you know, his hands are obviously his keys to victory in pretty much every fight. Um, you know, his hand speed is, uh, you know, one of the top in the division. Uh, and he packs a lot of power in those hands as well, too. Um, you know, there were times where we've seen him. Uh, finish fights with his hands but there's also times where we see him really point fight his way to a victory um his foot speed his his distance management has been you know very well uh received by most uh you know spectators but in terms of uh you know staying uh disciplined and staying on top of that throughout 15 minutes it's been very up and down for him per se so you know 
Josh, the Josh MFR is pretty much a, a very good example of that, where he looked really good in the first two rounds. Uh, you know, even in that second round, he got a little bit flashy and started showboating a bit because he just felt like he was in his groove and it looked like he was in his groove. You know, come that uh, third round, uh, you know, coming close to like less than a minute uh, away from victory, uh, Josh Emmett finds his chin in a, in a moment where it seemed like he got a little bit too lazy and, and too relaxed. That's one thing that he needs to, you know, stick on top of and stay on top of. Um, you know, one thing that is uh, his coaches were continuously yelling out, even like I believe like 20 or 30 seconds before he got knocked out, they're saying uh, stay disciplined, you know, uh, don't get too comfortable, um, stay sharp. Those were specific words that they continuously said to, uh, to him. Um, and then obviously Josh Emmett goes out there and knocks his ass out. In the Stevie Ray fight, once again, his hands look great. Stevie Ray is just not able to to keep up with the hand speed of uh, Michael Johnson. And Michael Johnson is able to light him up pretty much at will. Uh, and then in that third round, uh, you know, Stevie Ray secures a very crucial takedown, rides out top position for the majority of that round, uh, and rain down, rains down some big shots. So it, it seems like in most of Michael Johnson's fight, when he gets very comfortable with remaining on the feet... Um, you know, he might get lackadaisical in terms of his takedown defense. And we've seen fighters like Andre Feely, uh, Stevie Ray, Darren Elkins as well, uh, take advantage of that. Uh, sometimes, you know, when he's on, like, he's really good with uh, getting in and out with his strikes, avoiding any damage. Uh, but there are t moments in time where he just has a, a little lapse of judgment or whatever it is uh, that leads to either him getting knocked out, him getting taken down. Um, and then uh, fighters are able to break him in that aspect too. You know, wins over a split decision over Andre Feely and Artem Lobov, uh, you know, in his, what is that, three, five, two out of his last seven, he's won. Uh, and the one before that was obviously the Dustin Poirier fight, uh, you know, where he looked really good. His hands looked really sharp and he put Dustin Poirier away. But it, it really comes down to the mentality of Michael Johnson and uh, his ability to keep fights on the feet. You know, he did a really good job against uh, somebody that I thought was uh, easily relatable or, or comparable to Tiago Moises was Benio Darius, who um, Michael Johnson actually fought back in August of 2015. He did a very good job in that fight, too, where he, you know, kept the distance. He probably should have won that fight, too. That was, a, that was an interesting decision. But, you know, he did a good job of expecting the takedowns, staying away from the takedowns, landing good shots and getting out of the way. Um He's going to have to do the same thing here with Tiago Moises. But uh, Tiago Moises, I believe, is a little bit more refined on the feet than Benio Darius. You know, when Tiago Moises fought Benio Darius, it was more of a, a takedown-heavy, grapple-heavy game where Benio Darius was able to, you know, control Tiago Moises in those aspects. We haven't really seen the most offensive guard from Tiago Moises. He hasn't really uh, secured um, a finish in the UFC. Um you know, the Kurt Holobaw fight was great. He implemented his grappling there, his decent striking too. But in the Benio Darius fight, got completely outgrappled. And then in the Demir Ismagulov fight, which I believe might, um, you know, make people believe that Michael Johnson has a better chance than he does. Demir Ismagulov is another level of striker. You know, say what you... like. I, for for Michael Johnson, it's mainly his hands that are great. Demir Ismagulov is great. Hands, feet, everything. The guy is great. He He... He's able to really, you know, uh, confuse opponents and fluster opponents to to kind of second think whenever they're throwing their strikes. And then he's able to, you know, continuously dish out damage. And I think that was the problem with the Tiago Moises fight because, you know, Demir was just getting off at will and Moises was very, um, you know, confused. He didn't know really how to get his shots off. So 
I think there's a little bit of bias in the betting line in terms of people comparing Demirs Magulov to Michael Johnson. Um, you know, Michael Johnson, again, one of the best hands in the division. Uh, but if he gets a little bit lackadaisical here, I could absolutely see Thiago Moises, um, you know, taking this fight to the ground and then controlling him there. I think he'll have a lot better of a chance than uh, controlling and possibly going for a finish than uh, Stevie Ray and Darren Elkin. Well, Darren Elkin's obviously got the finish, but even Andre Feely is another example too, where I think Thiago Moises has the grappling advantage. Um, one thing I would say, like I compared to Benil Darius and Tiago Moises, but the one thing I'll say about Moises is his striking seems a little bit more refined than uh, Benil Darius. So he he will be able to at least keep this fight on the feet and not get completely blown out. Like I don't, um, you know, we saw him get dropped by Demir's Mangulov, but I think his chin is decent still so far. Uh, he has big power in his punches and kicks as well too. So that's something that Michael Johnson is going to need to worry about. But I think that Thiago Moises could lull Michael Johnson into thinking that this is mainly going to be a stand-up fight. And then whether it's in the first, second, or third round, at a certain point, he's going to change it up and go, you know, initiate the grappling, try to get this fight to the ground, take uh, Michael Johnson's bike and, and, you know, continue to, to control that fight in that aspect. I kind of like Thiago Moises here. Like, as long as he doesn't, one, get knocked out, two, um, you know, he, he's got to, Michael Johnson's got to mind his P's and Q's when it comes to the takedowns and, and the, the threat of a takedown coming in at any moment. But we've seen from tape that, you know, he he just forgets about it. And say what you want about Stevie Ray. Stevie Ray is mainly a striker, but uh, so maybe Michael Johnson wasn't really expecting Stevie Ray to to shoot but when you're fighting in MMA you got to pretty much expect any and everything and you know I don't think Tiago Moises has the greatest takedowns or anything like that but again I think the fact that his striking is kind of up there like better than an average guy who has uh jiu-jitsu at the level of Tiago Moises I think he has better hands than than most guys like that so I like Tiago Moises um I think his ability to mix and and uh and 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 you know uh, mixed the, the grappling and the striking in this fight will give him a slightly higher advantage of beating Michael Johnson. Now, I'm not going out there being super confident and wanting to bet Thiago Moises here. Uh, as I can, I could also see a scenario where Michael Johnson goes out there, lets his hands completely do the topping, talking, possibly get a finish or something like that. That's something that could absolutely happen. Uh, but when you look at the skill set and the tools of either guy, you got to give a slight edge to Thiago Moises here just due to his ability to mix in his grappling. Uh, another interesting line in this fight is the under two and a half. I believe it's plus 170. I just want to confirm that. Just so that was the last one that I saw it at. Uh, under two and a half plus 170. I think there's a ton of value there too because both guys pack knockout power and, uh, you know, Johnson in his punches, uh, Thiago Moises in his kicks and punches. And then obviously he has the advantage on the ground. High level Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. So we've seen, you know, Michael Johnson get tapped in the past from guys like uh, Darren Elkins, uh, close submission attempts from Andre Feely. Maybe Thiago Moises would be able to finish those attempts. Uh, one last thing about Michael Johnson in regards to grappling. Uh, I found that, uh, like, like the Darren Elkins fight, for example, when Elkins wrapped up that rear naked choke, he wasn't really fighting the hands. He was more so just trying to pull up on the arm. And that really isn't like the greatest grappling or rear naked choke defense. Um, even in the Andre Feely fight. In the Andre Feely fight, it actually paid off for him because he was actually able to push um, Feely's hands or, or Feely's elbow away from his chin. I don't think that's going to work against a guy like Thiago Moises. So he's going to really have to attack the hands to defend a rear naked choke from a high-level jiu-jitsu guy like that because just pu pushing up on the elbow is just not going to cut it for Michael Johnson. So uh, I'm liking Thiago Moises here. 
um, you know, going into this, I kind of expected that I was going to be, uh, you know, picking uh, Michael Johnson. But there's just, you know, I think there's a, a, a recency bias in terms of Tiago Moises's uh, lackluster performance against Demir Ismagulov. But that's not taking anything away from Demir. Demir is, again, high level potential top 10, top five guy in that division. Uh, and then, uh, you know, people comparing that fight into what Michael Johnson brings to the table in a striking realm. Uh, but, you know, they're kind of looking over the fact that Tiago Moises isn't horrible on the feet. You know, he just looked really bad on the feet against Demir because Demir's that fucking good. Uh, but Tiago Moises, on the other hand, he will be able to hold his own on the feet. As long as he doesn't get knocked out, he should be able to lull Michael Johnson into thinking that he wants to keep this as a stand-up uh, battle and then eventually start getting takedowns uh, and control Michael Johnson and possibly uh, finish, finish him as well too. So I'm going to go with Tiago Moses by second round submission. Um, the under two and a half, again, probably the best bet uh, in terms of value as well too. Both guys are, you know, at even uh, and I, you know, I'm not that high on Tiago Moises to be able to go out there and complete the game plan that I just laid out for you guys. Uh, but I think, you know, both guys are capable of finishes and that under two and a half at plus 170 looks really good. But in terms of a pick, I'm going to go with Tiago Moises to win by second round submission. Andre Arlovski versus Philippe Linz. This is the debut of Philippe Linz in the UFC. He came over th from the PFL after winning their tournament over there. Uh, he won his last fight over Josh Copeland, who is a UFC vet, and obviously Jared Rochard, who is also another UFC vet that he beat, and Alex Nicholson. So he's on a four-fight winning streak. Um, his win over a cow, Alan Carr, was very um, underwhelming, to say the least. I believe they were both friends, so they weren't really like throwing heavy at each other or anything like that. Uh, he wrapped up a nice guillotine choke and then got the, the win that way uh, a minute into that round. But uh, in terms of his fighting style, he's more of a stand-up striker. Uh, he likes to, you know, he's a calculated striker uh, with low output, it seems like. Uh, the numbers may be a little bit skewed due to his uh, fight with Josh Copeland, where, you know, Copeland was pretty much... Um, a punchy bag for the majority of that fight. Um, he was able to land really good shots. Uh, Copeland ate him. You know, the fight was stopped on the on the feet due to the fact that Copeland just wouldn't drop. Uh, but Linz was able to hit him with numerous shots uh, and, and, you know, eventually get the victory there. Um, Andrei Olovsky, on the other hand, he's coming off a knockout loss to Jerzy Rosenstrike, who everybody knows uh, has ridiculous power as well, so not too bad of a loss there. But uh, before that was beat Ben Rothwell in a very uh, entertaining fight, but it was also kind of like um, a Philippe Lenz versus Josh Copeland fight where Ben Rothwell wasn't really throwing much in return. Um, I'd say Copeland was a lot more gassed than Ben Rothwell was, but also, you know, it was easy for Andrei Olovsky to, you know, pick Ben Rothwell apart, move around, use his foot work use the speed and get the advantage there so the line is currently roughly around minus 165 for philippe Lins, plus 144 um andrea i just want to confirm that number yep that's right uh and then the over under it's over under two and a half the over is plus 100 so um you know one concern with andrea lasky always seems to be his chin that's something that's brought up in every single uh breakdown that you'll ever see about andrea lasky but the a fun fact here is the fact that He's gone to a decision eight out of nine of his last fights. Obviously, you know, that one being the Jersey Rosa strike fight where he got knocked out in 30 seconds. But for the most part, he's been able to eat some shots and keep chugging. You know, he's fought some heavy punchers in Tai Tuivasa, Walt Harris, uh, Ben Rothwell himself, too, has a bunch of power. 
but uh, his chin has held up pretty well. His cardio seems to be pretty good too. Like it, you know, for a heavyweight, relatively, it's it's not that bad. Uh, and then I don't think that there's going to be much of a high pace here put on by Philippe Linz. Uh, so I could see this fight going to a decision. Um, but my my main concern for Philippe Linz here is. Um, you know, it's his UFC debut, and I've kind of made a, a promise to myself that I won't ever bet um, debuting fighters anymore. Uh, you know, d- the Jeff Hughes over Marie Screen, uh, that one hurt me the most. Um, and, you know, there have been numerous times in the past as well. Uh, Ariane Lipsky is another one that comes to mind. But there are fighters that, you know, they look like they should go out there and beat their competition handily or have a really good shot at beating their competition, but then go out there and lay an egg, whether it's the UFC jitters or whatever it is. They're just not able to get their game going. And, like, that's what kind of keeps me a little bit hesitant here with Philippe Lins. And again, his his lack of activity at times. Like, he's very calculated. It's not like he's just standing there and, you know, not throwing anything. It's He's very, very calculated. He's waiting for his moments. And, uh, you know, from what I've seen from Andrzej Arlovski, he seems to still have a little bit of a pep in his step. Uh, his hand speed is still very good. I think he's going to have a slight speed advantage against Philippe Lenz here. Uh, Arlovski's going to have the footwork advantage as well, in my opinion. He's going to be able to continue to bob and weave and get out of the way of uh, a lot of the Philippe Lenz strikes. But, you know, it could take one strike for Philippe Lenz to put Andrzej Arlovski out. But, you know, considering that this fight could possibly go... Um, you know, 15 minutes, uh, it's tough for me to really see uh, a reason to bet Philippe Lins at minus 165 here. I think that's a little bit too much uh, juice on a guy that, you know, is making his UFC debut as a low output fighter, um, at least from the fights that I've seen. And, uh, you know, Arlovsky does a good job, again, of sticking and moving. And I think he could, uh, in terms of like size here, we're talking about 6'3", 77-inch reach for Andre Arlovsky, and then 6'2", 71.5-inch reach for Philippe Linz. So uh, Arlovsky has a little bit of a, an advantage there. Um, but again, like that, that chin could rear its head at any time. I think if you want to force yourself to make a bet here, you might have to go with... Um, the over two and a half, I think there's a ton of uh, value there. You know, Arlovsky play, plays most of his fights safe. He does his ja- damage and gets out. Um, I think Philippe Linz, there is a possibility that he could possibly catch him in that first round. But outside of that, uh, you know, he, he's going to have to, um, he, he's really going to have to d- turn his volume up uh, if he's going to want to get this fight away from Andre Arlovsky. You know, a, a similar fight uh, that Arlovsky had with what he might be having with Philippe Lenz was his fight with Augusto Sakai. You know, he that was a very close fight. Um, it, w- it went to a split decision, but there was a decent argument that Arlovsky could have came away with that fight as well too. And Augusto Sakai is kind of the same. Like, I feel like he has a slightly more output than uh, Philippe Lenz. Um but, you know, Philippe Lenz, again, very calculated. It's not like he's not throwing anything just because he can, but he doesn't want to make any errors. But you, you got to be, you got to throw something out there to let fighters know or let the judges know that you're trying to, you know, stay offensive in a fight as well, too. So I like Andre Arlovsky. I can't believe I'm actually saying that. But outside of getting knocked out, he has a really good shot of winning a decision here if Philippe Lenz really doesn't let the trigger go. And, you know, UFC jitters could have something to do with it here, too. Um I believe they have trained together in the past. I'm not. I can't 100% confirm that. But uh, Philippe Lins is out of American Top Team. Uh, Andre Arlovsky used to train a lot at American Top Team as well too. Uh, so these guys might be very familiar with each other. Um, that's something to con- take into consideration. Who knows who got the best of the other person at the gym? 
you know, that could definitely play uh, as a factor in fights. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bet the underdog money on Andre Lowski because again, like it would be tough for me to to really uh, confidently put money on a 41 year old who whose chin issues could pop up every now and then. Uh, but the over two and a half, uh, you know, if Farlovsky wins uh, or if you know Philippe Lenz doesn't really knock him out, that plus 100 on the over two and a half looks very intriguing. So I might look at that as the potential bet. Um, nothing concrete yet but uh, i'll definitely take a look and and see uh depending on what happens with the rest of the card uh and if i want to put money elsewhere but uh over two and a half is probably the play here uh i'll pick andre alovsky for the sake of this um this podcast but uh yeah i, I don't know if i would uh wager the plus 145 on him confidently so it's either you know again i wouldn't pay the juice at minus 165 for philippe Linz. he just hasn't shown me enough uh and arlovsky has a pretty decent path to victory here which is his activity and output so i'm going to take andre arlovsky to win by decision carl roberson versus marvin vittori this fight is very intriguing nope let me start that again <clears throat> carl roberson versus marvin vittori I couldn't wait to get into this matchup strictly due to the fact that everyone overwhelmingly seems to be on the Marvin Vittori side here. So as of this recording, he's minus 170. Carl Roberson is plus 150. And after finishing up the tape here, I don't really understand why everybody's so gaga over Marvin Vittori. So Marvin Vittori, you know, currently on a three-fight winning streak, two-fight winning streak, sorry. His third fight, uh, or third last fight, was a split decision loss to Israel Adesanya, which, you know, he did pretty well in, um, considering uh, Israel Adesanya's unique striking style. But in the Cesar Fajera fight, he was able to bust him up on the feet, uh, you know, out cardio him. And then in the Andrew Sanchez fight, obviously, he had the better hands and showed a ton of improvement in that fight as well, too. But uh, the, the the thing that was very uh, consistent throughout those three performances is that these fights mainly took place on the feet. And, uh, you know, he's going to have to come in with a bit of a takedown game, tame, takedown centric game plan against Carl Roberson if he hopes to get the victory here but I'm not completely writing off Carl Roberson either uh we've seen him uh have to you know use his grappling in his past couple fights um you know a lot of people want to point with the Glover to share a fight to be like okay look this guy absolutely shit on the ground I don't believe that you know Glover to share he may be up there in age but he definitely still has his chops intact in when it comes to the jiu-jitsu game. The guy has a crushing top game, which is why he's always more often than not able to land his arm triangle choke, um, main, able to maintain position as well too, which is why he made Carl Roberson look like such an amateur on the ground. But since then, Carl Roberson has been, you know, he got that win over Wellington Terman and then that uh, finish over Roman Kopilov in a fight where he looked really good. You know, uh, his leg kicks were, were very devastating in that fight. It pretty much rendered Roman Kopilov a mobile for the, the latter half of that fight. And then he eventually gets a rear naked choke at the end there. But, you know, he got out of some bad positions against Wellington Terman uh, on the ground. Uh, and then he was still able to be effective on the feet with his striking. And, you know, if Marvin Vittori is not really able to, I, I think he'll get Roberson down, don't get me wrong, but I'm not, I don't think that he's going to go out there and submit Carl Roberson. I don't think that he would even finish Carl Roberson from the uh, from a top position too. Roberson does a decent job of getting back to his feet. Uh, he's, you know, his sub, submission defense is on point as well too. Um yeah, I, I like him on the, if this fight mainly stays on the feet, I, I kind of like Carl Roberson. 
Um, you know, he's the more decorated striker here. Marvin Vittori is more so a, an overall MMA fighter. Uh, you know, pretty good at all facets of MMA. Uh, not really a specialist or a technician at one. If anything, you got to give him like his, his strength has got to be his striking. Um, you know, obviously working over there at Kings MMA and Rafael Cordero and those guys, uh, they've developed him into a pretty solid all-around MMA fighter. But when you got when you have a guy like Carl Roberson who's so, so good at one thing, um, you know, you you gotta be able to lean on the grappling aspects. And I don't think the the gap is significant enough uh, when it comes to the grappling realm that Carl Roberson would be a fish out of water if this fight does hit the ground. I expect this fight to mainly be in the stand-up realm, and in that case, like you, you got to weigh Marvin Vittori's activity against Carl Roberson's effectiveness when it comes to striking. So, I think that we'll see Roberson be able to 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 handle himself on the feet, um, to to keep this fight on the on the feet as well. Uh, you know, start landing leg kicks. Uh, counter Marvin Vittori very well. Vittori likes to crash forward with his blitzing strikes, but I think that's going to be good for Carl Robertson to kind of a counter and and land some good shots there. But at minus one seventy, I, I I really don't get the the whole hoopla about Marvin Vittori here. Uh, you know he is an ever improving fighter. I will give him that. But you 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 guys got to kind of you know uh, like this might be a little bit of recency bias because he looked really good against Andrew Sanchez but Andrew Sanchez you know outside of his grappling if he's not really able to implement that game uh it's a tough goal for him on the feet especially with his gas tank and Marvin Vittori had his, probably his best performance he had best overall performance against Andrew Sanchez whereas Carl Roberson you know looked decent against Wellington Terman got crushed before uh before that by Glover Teixeira and then the Roman Kopilov fight you know he looked pretty good on the feet um had some dicey moments here and there but was able to get the rear naked choke at the end of that third round Marvin Vittori, though, uh, you know, again, he just looks so much better than Carl Roberson did in his last couple fights. But I'm not completely counting Roberson out. I think he has a decent shot of winning this fight. And plus 150, not too bad of a price tag. Personally, I don't know if I'm going to play it myself, uh, as there are just other more intriguing spots throughout the card. Um, but yeah, got to think that Carl Roberson is a live dog here. And uh, a lot of the love that uh, Vittori is getting on the web uh, might be, you know, mishandled or uh, a mishap. Uh, I could be completely wrong here. We might see an even more improved Marvin Vittori here where he's able to really grind Carl Roberson out. But Roberson's a strong guy. We've seen him get that uh, elbow knockout from the clinch against Ryan Spann on the Contender Series. The guy has power. So Marvin Vittori is going to have to be very careful when he, when he's exchanging uh, with Roberson. But I like Roberson here. Again, probably not enough to, to bet him. Unless we see a crazy plus 200 line on Roberson or anything like that, uh, I'm going to stay away from this fight. Um, good luck to whoever did bet Marvin Vittori out there, but I think it's going to be a lot tougher than most people are making it seem. So I'm taking Carl Roberson to win this fight by decision, though I do think there's a little bit of value on the under, which is roughly around plus 170 right now. So uh, I think that's a good spot, even though I'm picking Roberson to win by decision. Uh, again, most of this fight will play out on the feet, uh, which leaves openings for finishes for both guys. I think Carl Roberson would be the one that uh, is able to get the finish if if it does get finished. Uh, however, I'm still going to take it more so as like uh, he might go up about this in a, a technical uh, approach against Marvin Vittori to 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 land his striking, to establish his leg kicks, and pick apart Marvin Vittori for 15 minutes. I got to go with Roberson. Might be a dicey first round in terms of if Marvin Vittori is able to get the takedown and and you know 
being as fresh as, as he is at that point, being able to keep Carl Robertson down and grind him out. But uh, if he's not able to finish him, rounds two and three could be very intriguing with Carl Robertson striking continue to, continuing to establish itself over those uh, 15 minutes. So I'm going with Robertson by decision. Probably a no bet though. So let's start off with Ricky Simone. Uh, he's coming off a loss to Rob Font. And then before that, uh, got dusted by Uriah Faber pretty quickly in a giant upset in that fight and the fight before that he beat a top prospect in Montel Jackson who started to come in his own uh in that 135 division and uh you know if that fight were to happen again I'd be interested to see what the outcome would be but Ricky Simone you know great hands heavy puncher uh he rocked Rob Font uh uh once and then also hurt him to the body so it shows he has a lot of power for sure you know his fight or actually i did make a little bit of gaff there there was the honey yaya fight between the faber and jackson fight so we did see you know when he did fight somebody with a huge jujitsu uh background he was able to keep the fight on the feet kind of went like the kamaru usman route whenever when he fought damian maya you know whenever damian maya fought those wrestlers Obviously, they didn't want anything to do with the ground game, so they were able to keep it on the feet, and uh, that's pretty much what Ricky Simone did against Hani Yaya. In the Rob Font fight, um, you know, we really saw what would happen if uh, he went up against a superior striker who had decent takedown defense. You know, he did manage to land a couple takedowns in that fight. Rob Font even landed a takedown his own as well, but uh, he was able to, to actually outpoint Ricky Simone on the feet, hurt him a couple times as well, and use that stinging jab to keep Ricky Simone on the outside. Here, I believe that Ricky Simone is going to have the strength and size advantage over Ray Borg, who's being forced to come up in weight due to, you know, obviously missing weight numerous times in the past. So in terms of size, we're talking about 5'4", 63 inches for Ray Borg, uh, 5'6", 70 inches uh, reach for Ricky Simone. Um, I'm kind of surprised at the line at this. I thought it would be a little bit closer. Minus 170 currently for Ricky Simone, plus 150 for Ray Borg. I, I, you know, I'm passing this fight first and foremost, definitely passing this fight. But the odds should definitely be a little bit closer uh, considering that, you know, Ray Borg, very grapple heavy, um, probably one of the best scramblers in the UFC, if not in MMA in general. Um, I'm interested to see how he's able to continue his scrambling uh, and fight against Ricky Simone, who's obviously going to be the stronger guy here, who has a great wrestling base as well, too. Um, I feel like Ray Borg might have a little bit of the jiu-jitsu edge here. So, like, if it, you know, if they do find, find themselves on the ground, I could see him continuously scrambling, eventually finding Ricky Simone's back, and then maybe even just hanging out there, uh, you know, accruing top position or accruing um dominant position time uh you know pitter pattering working chokes whatever it is but i'm surprised that the the line is you know a little bit wide uh considering you know ray borg's pedigree um i think people are maybe reading in a little bit too much into ricky simone's uh size and strength advantage here because when it really comes down to the type of pace and pressure that ray borg puts on uh it could definitely give ricky simone some troubles and i'm not saying that ricky simone has cardio issues or anything like that but when you're constantly go 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 scrambling all the time you know ray borg's type of pressure and pace uh might be hard to match so um i think it's good that he's going up in weight um you know obviously his uh, recent misses doesn't really help his case but uh, if he's able to establish himself here at the 135 division he could be a little bit uh, you know he could he could make a little bit of waves I truly believe that um, 
he he could make a run at the top, especially with the the division being a little bit more wide open now that Henry Cejudo has decided to retire. Will he be able to beat guys like Peter Yan or anything like that? I'm not 100% sure yet, but he's still only 26, very young in the game, uh, has a ton of talent, especially when it comes to his grappling and scrambling, like as I've pretty much hammered home this entire breakdown, but um, he could be taught, he could be some trouble, and plus 150 on him is not that bad. Um, I'm just slightly questioning the strength, uh, the strength difference here. So I'm not sure if Ray Borg will be able to establish that. But man, there's a lot of dogs barking on this uh, on this card, and you know, you guys have seen me pretty much pick a, a lot of dogs on this card, and for good reason. A lot of them have a really good shot. Um, Again, I'm I'm trying to convince myself in terms of trying to pick Ricky Simone to win this fight, but I I, I can't. <laughs> I'm picking Ray Borg strictly due to again scramble ability, uh, pace, cardio, um, you know, willingness to continuously move forward. Uh, he's gonna have to you know eat some shots to get on the inside of Ricky Simone, and it's not a huge advantage in terms of size that Ricky Simone has here, but um, you know it is. It is evident. You can definitely see between the two that uh, Ray Borg should definitely be a weight class below. Um, but yeah, I, I like the possibility of Ray Borg out cardioing, outpacing Ricky Simone here to to go on uh, and win a decision. Um, again, odds a little bit too wide. We may see the odds come a little bit closer as fight day gets closer and closer. But I like Ricky Simone here. Um, yeah, and I'm going to pick him by decision. Alexander Hernandez versus Drew Dober. This is a very intriguing fight because it's been quite heavily debated on Twitter. A lot of people are really looking forward to this fight due to the fact that, you know, Alexander was this rising prospect at a point in time when he burst onto the UFC scene uh, by knocking out Benio Darius very, very quickly. Uh, after that, he went on to face Olivier Aubameau-Mercier. Had a decent showing there where he was able to outgrapple Olivier Aubameau-Mercier for the majority of that fight. Showed some good grappling exchanges, um, you know, had a little bit of trouble on the feet with Olivier Aubin, but, uh, you know, was able to drag the fight into his realm and was able to grind out the decision victory there. Next up was a big, big test for him against Donald Cowboy Cerrone in a fight that a lot of people expected him to go out there and blow Cowboy Cerrone out of the way. Um went into that fight as a minus 225 favorite uh, and then ended up coming up on the losing end. It really showed in that fight that he had a lot of work still to do regarding his stand-up or that could also be a testament to the, how good Donald Cerrone is with his striking as well. Uh, in the Francisco Trinaldo fight, a relatively inactive fight. Not a, lamb, not a lot of damage dished out either way. Even though Alexander Hernandez had a couple cuts on his face, he still came away with a decision victory in that fight. One thing that was evident in that fight is that he's still not or doesn't seem to be as comfortable on the feet as he normally is or, or should be as an MMA fighter, at least in the UFC. Drew Dober, on the other hand, he's kind of like an Enrique Barzola type of fighter where, you know, they they are strikers turned grapplers. Now they're back to striking. Maybe not Barzola as much as Dober, but in Dober's last three fights, he's shown really good hands. He's shown why his uh, kickboxing background and Muay Thai background uh, should, shouldn't be taken lightly. In that fight against Benio Darius, rocked him twice in that first round. Eventually in that second round, uh, Darius was able to bully him to the ground, use his jiu-jitsu and lock up an armbar with 19 seconds remaining in that second round. 
Polo Reyes fight, a minute and seven seconds. Uh, you know, he landed a great shot to the body uh, that pushed Polo Reyes back, and then he came back with another one too to put Polo Reyes on his butt. Very, very impressive uh, showing in case in terms of his his striking ability. There, next up comes in against Nazrat Hackprest as a huge underdog, plus two sixty five. Comes in and puts Nazrat Hackprest away with the beautiful counter cross to ground and pound finish there. That was a that was kind of his coming out party because a lot of people are are still really high on Nazra Hackprest, but he was able to go out there and make it quite easy for him to to get that victory. You know, I think he kind of dodged a bullet uh, in terms of his booking with Diego Fajera. That fight was actually scheduled to happen on May 2nd before this whole coronavirus stuff took over. Uh, And now he's been rescheduled to face Alexander Hernandez, who could be somewhat an easier matchup. You know, if he's able to keep this fight on the feet, uh, he should be able to piece up Alexander Hernandez. You know, Alexander Hernandez seems to be maybe a one-hit wonder at this point. You know, he was able to go out there and finish uh, Benio Darius quickly, but hasn't really panned out otherwise. The Trinaldo win, you know, it's it's there's a lot of asterisks on that fight strictly due to the fact that, you know, some people thought that uh, Trinaldo won. Some people thought it was hometown cooking since it was in San Antonio, which is his hometown. Um, you know, it, there's still a lot of questions on Alexander Hernandez, in my opinion, but Drew Dober is really coming into his own and his hands look amazing. The work that he's doing over there at uh, Elevation Fight Team in Denver is paying dividends for him. And I think he's truly coming into his own. Uh, the line, the fight is lined very closely. Minus 125 for Drew Dover, plus 105 for Alexander Hernandez. The The line is going pretty much up and down ever since this fight was announced. Um, I really like Drew Dober in this situation because I think that he's going to be able to keep Hernandez off of him. I think that he's going to be able to use his striking, stay long, use his kicks, uh, and stay on the outside while he continues to batter Alexander Hernandez. Um, I I could potentially see a finish because I have seen Hernandez continues to get hit over and over. His striking defense definitely needs some work. Plus 135 on the under 2.5 is not a bad bet if that's something that you want to consider. But uh, in terms of picking a side, I really like Drew Dober here. Um, I'm not confident enough to actually bet him uh, at that number strictly due to the fact that there could absolutely be a scenario where Hernandez is able to close a distance latch himself onto Dober and not let go. You know, he was able to do that to Obama Mercier, who, you know, is a pretty good grappler in his own right and is very strong as well too. But Drew Dober is a much better striker than Obama Mercier. So it's, you know, it's going to come down to whether Hernandez will be able to, you know, confidently and easily close that distance without eating too much damage. But, you know, Dober throws with some heat, uh, you know, hack pressed, was really known to have a pretty good chin uh, and he was dropped by Dober with a clean shot down the pipe. So if uh, Dober is able to land something like that on Hernandez, he could definitely, you know, cause some issues there. Um, in the Hernandez fight with Francisco Trinaldo, you know, Trinaldo packs a lot of power in his punches, but the issue is that I believe that Dober is a lot quicker uh, with the striking than Francisco Trinaldo. So that could be issues here for Hernandez, you know. He squeaked out that fight from Trinaldo and, you know, there were instances where he was able to crash forward, land a couple shots and get out of there, but nothing crazy, uh, nor did he have to worry too much about the uh, the, the speed in which Trinaldo's striking was coming back at him. Uh, he did get hit a couple times. Obviously, we saw some superficial injuries on his face due to the damage that Trinaldo landed, but I think that Dober, Dober is going to be a lot more 
dangerous just due to his hand speed. I think he's going to be quicker in terms of countering uh, whenever Hernandez tries to close a distance. So, you know, mix in Drew Dober's footwork, striking, um, relatively decent takedown defense, you know. Um, I, I think he has a good shot of pulling off this win here. So uh, I, I like him. Uh, you know, decent odds on him if you want to make this bet, if you really want to bet on this fight, Drew Dober is probably the way to go. Otherwise, the plus 135 on the under 2.5 is intriguing as well too in case, you know, Dober is able to keep this fight on the feet. Uh, and then, you know, either Hernandez lands a big bomb like he did against Benio Dariush or Drew Dober, you know, puts together a masterpiece and then eventually puts away Alexander Hernandez a la, you know, that Donald Cerrone fight. So I like Drew Dober here. Uh, I'm going to pick him to win by, let's say, late second round stoppage. Um, but yeah, the only thing giving me pause is if Hernandez is able to continuously close that distance, latch himself onto Dober and make it a tough grinding fight so that Dober's not able to get his striking going. But um, yeah, I'm going to go with Dober here to win by late second round stoppage. Ovin same prove versus Ben Rothwell. This fight kind of came out of left field, just like uh, Derek Lewis versus Ilir Latifi, which we got earlier this year. Um, you know, we got a light heavyweight coming up to heavyweight. And obviously, due to this whole COVID and coronavirus stuff going on, it kind of makes a little bit more sense. You know, uh, Omin St. Pru, uh, probably going to come in a little bit heavier, probably 230, 240-ish, um, not having to cut weight or anything. But it's going to be tough to tell in terms of how that's going to affect his cardio, which you know, in the past has always been a little bit flimsy. Um, you know, odds currently minus 140 for OSP, plus 120 for Ben Rothwell. But, uh, you know, I think OSP is going to have to make sure he stays on his feet, um, you know, keeps moving. Uh, if he stays in a neutral position, Ben Rothwell will probably be able to, you know, blitz forward and land some heavy shots and maybe put OSP away. We've definitely seen OSP go to sleep before, so uh, I'm not counting it out as a as a possibility against a guy who hits as hard as Ben Rothwell. Um, you know, Ben Rothwell, on the other hand, uh, hasn't looked the greatest as of late. He did finish Stefan Struve last time around, but, uh, you know, he was close to, uh, you know, he he was actually getting outpointed in that round. Most people remember it as the infamous fight where he kicked Stefan Struve in the in the nuts twice, <laughs> uh, and then eventually you know lost a point and then knew he had a lot of ground to make up, so he went for the finish against Struve. But you know the Arlovsky fight, he was pretty much a punching bag in that fight. You know it, it was not a good look. Uh, maybe it was the footwork, uh, the the movement of Arlovsky that was really throwing Ben Rothwell off. But he really got bloodied up and beat up in that fight, so not a good look for Ben Rothwell there. For the Blagoy Ivanov fight, I, that was his first fight back after roughly three years, just just close to three years, um, and he looked good. I'll give him that. You know, he uh, he probably should have won that fight. He lost a unanimous decision there, but there's a lot of people giving that fight to Rothwell. So, um, you know, I, I feel like he probably should have won that fight. He looked good there. I'm not sure what happened in the Arlovsky fight. He just couldn't pull the trigger or anything like that. Uh, and then in the Stefan Struve fight, you know, he just had to pretty much get that point deducted to be able to go ahead and get the finish over Struve. But I, I really don't know what we're going to see here against OSP. Um, you know, I, I could, if OSP sticks and moves, I could easily see him get tired in that second round. And then Ben Rothwell is able to, you know, he, he doesn't have the worst cardio, so he may be able to uh, put together a couple blitz attacks in that second and third round and really put it on OSP, maybe take him down, ground and pound him or something like that. He has some decent submissions himself too, even though OSP has pretty much renamed the Von Flu choke to the Von Pru choke, having, you know, numerous amounts of uh, Von Pru choke finishes in the UFC, not in, you know, not to mention his last one against Mihalo Likshajak, 
Um, that was a fight where Mihal really, you know, put uh, put the burner on OSP from the get-go, working the body heavy, but he seemed like he was overly aggressive and that led to him eventually gassing himself out, leading to OSP getting that Von Flu choke you know, or Von Pru choke in the second round. Uh, before that, you know, the Nikita Krilov fight, he didn't look the greatest either. Uh, he was getting taken down pretty easily. Uh, really looked like he gassed himself after that first round. Uh, the Dominic Reyes fight obviously got outstruck pretty much the whole entire time. I think it's going to be tough for him to put away Ben Rothwell. You know, Rothwell has a great chin. OSP has decent power, uh, decent submissions, but I don't think he'll be able to catch Ben Rothwell in any type of Von Pru choke or anything like that. So that's something to keep an eye on. But um, it's tough to call this fight. You know, I, I'm not really certain which way I'm leaning here. I think that OSP has the more has more tools, especially on the feet. Uh, ben Rothwell always has that weird herky-jerky style where he just has his hands in like this weird position, but he's able to just manipulate them in coming into different angles with uppercuts, hooks, and straights. Um, and sometimes he's efficient with them, but he really leaves himself open to be attacked. Uh, doesn't have the best striking defense, but, you know, he has this very good shin uh, that allows him to eat a lot of shots. But, you know, on the judges scorecards that doesn't always look the best when you're always getting hit um I'm questioning OSP's ability to go a full 15 here against a Ben Rothwell who you know more than likely will come in at 265 and has shown that he can go all three rounds uh and still dish out damage you know that again that Blagoy Ivanov fight he was really putting it on Ivanov in that third round too so uh, I don't really know where to go I'm definitely passing on OSP um I was thinking about the under two and a or under two and a half. Uh, it's currently at minus one twenty, but you know Rothwell is durable, so I don't know if OSP will be able to pull him out. Um, the only person I really seen putting the other person out is Rothwell putting out OSP um, later in the fight. So I'll probably pass on this fight in total. Really tough for me to get a read in terms of, again, this all depends on how OSP looks at heavyweight. And that's too many question marks for me to bother putting any money on this fight. It's, I hate to say it, you know, cliche as it sounds, Dogger passes the situation here for Ben Rothwell uh, and OSP. So either take that plus 120 on Ben Rothwell or just completely pass on this fight. I would recommend passing on this fight. But uh, yeah, I, I like uh, Rothwell. Ah, fuck yeah i like rothwell to get this fight late i can't believe i'm picking as many dogs as i am like it, the, the most of these fights are very very closely lined and even the one that's you know ridiculously lined uh in sajar eubanks and sarah Morais, i still like the underdog there I, I i don't know what it is maybe it's just covid times but there's there's a lot of uh you know winning formulas for some of these uh underdog fighters and then a lot of question marks in terms of some of these favorites like you know a lot of people are putting stock in marvin vittori and then uh now osp as well too so yeah, I don't know how you can confidently go out there and bet OSP, you know, relying on his chin, relying on his questionable gas tank, especially carrying around probably 20 to 25 pounds more than he normally does when he's in the cage. Um, we don't know how he's going to look. So uh, I'm going to go with Rothwell here, probably by second round KO, late second round TKO. Um, but yeah, overall, this fight is a complete pass for me. Uh, next up, we got the main event, Glover Teixeira versus Anthony Smith. I'm very, very happy to see this fight take place. And I'm kind of surprised that the, you know, some people are just uh, 
kind of writing off Glover Teixeira at this point. You know, he is up there in age. I believe, I believe, yeah, he's hit 40 years old. He'll be 41 in October. Um, but he's still putting together wins. He's still beating these young, spry, up-and-coming guys as well, too. Uh, but, you know, some of them look uh, questionable. So, like, let's take the Carl Roberson and Ian Kutilaba fights, for example. Got hurt in those fights, was able to weather the storms of both guys who are heavy, heavy punchers in them. And in my opinion, uh, heavier and more powerful punchers than Anthony Smith. He was able to weather those storms, come back, and then eventually choke both of those guys out. And then in the Nikita Krilov fight, uh, you know, whenever this fight found itself in the grappling positions, uh, you know, there was a time where he gave up the the back mount. He, you know, Krilov pretty much uh, shook him off from the top, but then he was able to reverse the position and then regain top control. I've said it during the Carl Roberson uh, breakdown as well, too, that Glover Teixeira has a crushing top jiu-jitsu game. Uh, he's very dense. He's very strong. And uh, he has that all-man strength at this point. And, you know, from what I've seen from Anthony Smith, he doesn't have the greatest takedown defense. According to UFC stats, he's at 51% takedown defense. Uh, but again, I don't read too heavily into those stats because they're very skewed depending on who their opponents are. But, you know, the the, the Cesar Fajera fight, I know that was over four years ago and that was at a different weight class too. Uh, but Fajera seemed to have literally no trouble getting him down twice per round. Uh, you know, Anthony Smith is a black belt himself too. But I think that uh, Glover Teixeira is another level of jiu-jitsu, especially when he has that top position um you know just some of the takedown attempts that i've seen and and the the successful takedown attempts i've seen against anthony smith have left me wondering whether he's even going to be able to stuff what glover Teixeira is able to bring to him you know um we've seen times where uh the the opponent shoots from a little bit further out than they should have but they're able to back anthony smith against the cage lock their hands up behind his butt and then drag him to the ground i believe we could see that from glover Teixeira. um you know, Glover Teixeira, he's been put out by Alexander Gustafsson in a five-round fight at the end, uh, which is a possibility and a path to victory for Anthony Smith if this fight does get to the fourth or fifth round. Uh, and then Anthony Johnson, round one. You know, outside of that, he the last time he was finished was his first ever fight in uh, ever, WEC3 back in 2002. So... Um, I think he's still quite durable, even though he's gotten dropped in his last couple fights. Uh, again, I don't think Anthony Smith has the craziest power. Yeah, Anthony Smith was able to put out Rashad Evans, Shogun Hua, um, and Hector Lombard, but those guys, and Andrew Sanchez, and Elvis Mutopcic. Uh Not so much Elvis Mutopcic. Uh I think he just lacks skill, but those other guys, very weathered in their chins, uh, always have had questionable chins. Andrew Sanchez, for example, a third-round loss there. Uh, for him uh, you know we all know Andrew Sanchez has a shit gas tank so obviously Anthony Smith was just able to overwhelm him there in that fight uh, same with Hector Lombard always had a shitty gas tank lost in the third round there uh, Rashad Evans Shogun who have dusted in the first round because they can't handle the power from anybody anymore Volkan Uzdemir that fight you know, in that second round, Uzdemir was able to get Smith down with relative ease and ride out that top position. Um, you know, he was looking, he was, he was controlling the back of Anthony Smith and Smith was able to get back to his feet. However, um, I think if Glover Teixeira finds himself in that position, he will be a lot more successful, whether it's, you know, raining down shots from that position or, you know, manipulating uh, Anthony Smith in a way that he's able to use his, use his jiu-jitsu a little bit more effectively. You know, 
Tony, my my combative Stewart's co-host, seems like it's a makes it seem like it's a foregone conclusion that Anthony Smith is going to go out there and dust Glover to Shira. I think Smith's best chance of winning this fight is maybe in the fourth or fifth round, um, where Glover may possibly start slowing down. But you know, Smith is not really like a, a round winner. I forgot who I saw on Twitter saying that, but that's the perfect kind of phrase to to or title to put on him. He he goes out there and he seeks finishes. It's very rarely that you'll see him go out there and actually win a decision. You know, the Volkan Uzdemir fight and Alexander Gustafsson's fights both finished in the third and fourth round, respectively, just due to the fact, well, Volkan Uzdemir seemed to, you know, really uh, shit the bed in terms of his gas tank there, wasn't able to finish Anthony Smith early, and it didn't look like he really wanted to be there after that. Uh, wasn't really even fighting the choke either, the rear naked choke that eventually led to his finish. Um, you know, he, he waited a lot for some reason. He, like, he wasn't even pushing up on the elbows or anything. Uh, eventually, he started to reach for, for the hands and tried to fight those, but it was already a little bit too late, in my opinion. Uh, Anthony Smith had already had it too deep, and he was able to get the finish there. Alexander Gustafsson, I, I'm not sure exactly what happened there either. You know, uh, Smith gets a, a weird takedown up against the cage, gets the back, uh, and then just starts, you know, raining down some good shots on Alexander Gustafsson. I think Glover Teixeira would have a better chance of getting out of that position, you know, even though he's older and maybe not as athletic as Alexander Gustafsson. But, you know, his jiu-jitsu is no joke, even though he's 40 years old and he may be a little bit slower. He his power and his technique gets it done for him on the ground. I believe that Smith will be able to hit him on the feet, but I don't think it will be anything to the point that uh, Smith is actually going to be able to put him out. So that's uh, you know that's that's definitely a concern. Uh, for Smith but it, it's tough for me to see how Glover doesn't find a way to get this fight to the ground and then sink in one of his patented arm triangle chokes uh, I'm going to say probably second round um, and and it's crazy like uh, at plus 155 I think there's some good value on Glover Teixeira I'm not 100% sure if I'll actually play that bet myself I still got to see uh, you know how I'm able to distribute my 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 money throughout this uh, event without getting too crazy uh but yeah there are already a lot of live underdogs here and glover Teixeira is definitely headlining this card and we could see a lot of dogs pull off the upset here so uh, i like glover Teixeira to win by second round submission uh you know i've faded anthony smith in the past before um you know the vulcan uzdemir fight is a fight that i took him uh, took uh, vulcan over um anthony smith because that was his first in my opinion that was his first true test at light heavyweight uh against a guy that wasn't completely washed you know compared to rashad evans and Mauricio shogun hua uh but then you know vulcan went out there and shit the bed uh and Lo and behold, Anthony Smith was able to get a title shot off of that Vulcan Uzdemir win, loses a very lackluster decision to John Jones, and then comes back and beats Alexander Gustafsson, who, you know, I believe he retired after retired after that fight. But uh, you, you can see he kind of already had like one foot out the door. Glover Teixeira just seems like he's going to keep on chugging. I, I forgot what fight it was, but DC was talking about how Glover said he wanted to fight till he was like 50 years old. And, you know, luckily for him, light heavyweight and heavyweight are, are the dinosaur divisions. So even if you're like 40 or 42 or something, you could still have success. And, uh, you know, Anthony Smith is a veteran. He's been around the game. He's had, uh, this is going to be his 47th fight. A lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of experience under his belt, but I think that Glover Teixeira, you know, once he gets that top position, it's going to be very, very tough for Anthony Smith to survive that. 
And I, again, I don't think Anthony Smith is anything special. And I hate to say that because I love the guy. I think he's he's good. He's he's pretty decent. But it's like right place, right time for him coming into the light heavyweight division. You know, just as Rashad Evans and Shogun Huara continuously getting knocked the fuck out by their competitions. Uh, you know, going in against Avokin Uzdemir, um, who you know say what you want about him, but I still feel like his only real path to victory in fights is trying to knock guys out in that first two rounds. Then obviously the John Jones loss and then the timing for the Alexander Gustafson fight. You know, um, you know, Gustafson was doing actually pretty well in that fight, but that fourth round, something just happened. I don't know what it was, but you know, Smith gets the takedown and then pounds about get the gets the rear naked choke as well too. But uh yeah, I'll, I'll wrap this up quickly. Glover to share to win by uh submission second round. Uh not sure if it's gonna be a bet hundred percent yet, but um yeah, that's where I like. Yeah, so that's the UFC Jacksonville card. I, I'm, I'm. You guys have no idea how excited I am to like continuously be taping fights over and over and over. Um, you know, we had UFC 249 this past week. Now we got uh, this Jacksonville card, uh, and then another Jacksonville card on Saturday as well too, which should be uh, th- that breakdown should be coming out in the next day or two as well too. So make sure you guys check that out. Um, getting a lot of love on the Patreon page. Again, I'll, I'll reiterate, um, I, I record, as you guys have seen, I, I've been recording all of my breakdowns separately, and as soon as I finish recording them, I post them right to the Patreon so that everybody can take a look at it. Well, all my Patreon subscribers can get first dibs on my uh, on my breakdowns and, and see uh, where my head is at for most of these fights. On top of the the early release for these breakdowns on the Patreon, you guys also get a Best Bets article where I pretty much break down every single fight briefly uh, in an article and then let you know what the best bet is in terms of money line and or the total. Um, and uh, I, I got a bunch of other shit on there. Make sure you guys check it out. I got the link in the description below. Uh, getting a lot of love recently and I'm you know it's very much making me motivated to continue to put out this content for you guys so I can continue I can you know, get that much closer to making this a full-time thing, which I I really hope that I'm able to do uh, very, very soon. But either way, uh, check out uh, my Twitter, at MMALOTN. I'm going to have my picks posted on there. If they're not already posted on there, make sure you guys check that out. Uh, And then the website, www.mmalotn.ca. All my shit's up there. Uh, yes, yeah, you guys in a couple days, maybe Thursday, I'm hoping to get the, the Saturday breakdown out for you guys. So you guys can enjoy that episode of the MMA Lawcast. All right. That's about it. See you guys next time and good luck on your bets. Bye.